Back in the 90s, there was a, uh, oh, uh, a clothing manufacturer. They, they made sports apparel, and probably no one, maybe no one remembers. I barely remember. But it was No Fear. And you, you might remember, you see these kids wearing No Fear t-shirts. And their, their shirts often had sayings on them. And one of the ones that I remember was this. He who dies with the most toys wins. No fear, right? And as, you know, good creative Christians do, um, we made our own answer to that shirt. He who dies with the most toys, do you remember it? Still dies. Still dies, yeah. That was the Christian, you know, version that we stole. Now, I did look this up this morning. Um no fear, he who dies with the most toys wins. That company declared bankruptcy in 2011. So uh, uh, all good things come to an end, I guess. But he who dies with the most toys wins. Maybe you've heard the saying, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Which actually we have seen now. I saw it on Facebook a month or two ago. But it's this, right, it's this idea that that you can't take it with you. Um, Craig Blomberg, who's a, a, a New Testament scholar, I think used to be out of Denver Seminary. He's got a um, a book. And he's kind of an expert on the the Bible's teaching on um, possessions and wealth and poverty. He said this in his book, "Neither poverty, poverty nor riches." It's arguable, it's arguable <clears throat> that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the visible church. Now, he, he published that in 1999, and I, I do wonder if after the kind of what's gone on in America over the last decade or so, if, if he might change his statement, that it's the biggest competitor. But nonetheless, materialism is still an issue, and I think his observation is appropriate. And materialism hasn't escaped the church. Now, most churches are pretty good at sniffing out what we call the prosperity gospel, right? This idea that somehow... Um, if you have a right relationship with God, then all will go well with your health and with your wealth. Um, and we're, we're generally pretty good at avoiding that. But sometimes even churches that are good at avoiding that have kind of an implicit prosperity gospel. And we see it by the way they present themselves, the way they use their resources um, I once, during seminary, Amber and I were going to this little church plant, struggling to make ends meet, but I taught at a very exclusive and expensive Baptist Christian school in North Dallas, and they spent more on their stage backdrop for whatever sermon series they were in than my church did on everything in a year 
and I would walk into the, because that year the, the high school was still meeting inside the church building, and I would catch glimpses of that stage every day, and that's what would come to mind. Like, that's our whole budget for the year, just on their stage. When Christmas came around, it's a good time to do fundraisers, and schools do this. They had um, they had an event every year called the Tour of Homes, where for like 40 or 50 bucks, you could buy a ticket to get on a bus to go look at the mansions that many of their, apparently many, many of their parishioners lived in, which was just weird to me. Um, I often wondered if they read the New Testament. I don't know, but it was a good Baptist church, so I guess they had. Um, or even with, and I've shared this before, even as a seminary student and and uh, just my experience in church, right? The, the, the status of a pastor is always measured by the size of his church. How big it is now or how much it's grown. And if you don't have the right kind of numbers, you'll never preach at the right places. You'll never be asked to speak at the big conferences, things like that. So we do have our own kind of implicit materialism that that can be a trap. Jesus is going to address materialism, possessions and wealth in this passage, but he doesn't do it just for the sake of addressing possessions and wealth. His greater point is this, and it's really been his point all along. Disciples of Jesus have a singular devotion. Disciples of Jesus have a singular devotion. Um, We saw this in the Beatitudes, right? And if you remember, these aren't like virtues that we're supposed to form in ourselves so much as they were Jesus just identifying what kind of people his disciples were. His disciples come, came from among the poor in spirit. They are, are people who were mourning, most likely in repentance. They were the meek. They were the hungry for righteousness. They were the ones who were showing mercy. And then they were the ones who are pure in heart, which doesn't speak so much to moral purity as it does to singularness of devotion. Okay, their hearts were... Devoted to one thing, to God's kingdom, to Jesus as their king, and to the advancement of his kingdom. And then two weeks ago, the week before Easter, we looked at these ideas of um, the, the giving your, your alms, giving to the needy in a private, anonymous way, of um, uh, praying not to be seen by people, and not even to impress God with your many words. And then it was about fasting, while not looking like you're fasting. And the point of it all was that God sees our hearts. God rewards what's done in secret because he's present in the secret spaces, that he knows our hearts. And the point of this week's passage is really no different. Let me read it for you. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. 
Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy or rust. It's hard to not say rust. Uh, And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Pray with me, would you? Father, as always, we're thankful for the gift of your word. Help us to not take it for granted. Help us to handle it responsibly. Help us to hear in it the message that your spirit has to say to us this morning. Change us, shape us, form us into the disciples that you would have us be. And anything that doesn't fit, anything that doesn't look like that, empower us, enable us to just let go of, to get rid of, to cut it off. For your glory and for the good of your kingdom. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are two commands in this passage, both occurring in the first two verses. These two commands, one negative and the other positive, will be followed by two images or two illustrations, each providing a graphic comparison and contrast, helping us to understand the commands. <coughs> the first command begins first verse 19. It's the very first word of the verse. Jesus says, do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth. This negative imperative could also mean something like stop storing up treasures for yourself. And I don't know that there's a huge difference. And I think we need to hear both. So if you are storing up treasures for yourself on earth, stop. And if you're not, Don't ever start. And there's a play on words here. To bring it out into English would be something like this. Stop storing or stop treasuring up treasures. The noun and the verb come from the same root here, and it's kind of a play on words. This emphasis is on storing up things to use selfishly, hoarding things. Acquiring possessions as a sign of wealth or status. And then we get this phrase, for yourselves. It's emphatic. Stop storing up for your own good, for your own benefit. Again, for your own status. 
treasures on earth. Now, you might ask, what's wrong with storing up treasures for yourself? It's a good and a fair question. The Bible actually supports the idea of using wisdom during times of plenty to prepare for times of want. It's a good and godly thing to use your resources to take care of your family and to take care of your neighbors. And of course, one way we might do this is through saving what we have. So what's the issue? Why the prohibition? Well, there are a couple of things going on here. First, and I've already said it, the emphasis is on the selfishness of this. This is storing up stuff for yourselves, for yourselves. Secondly, they're earthly treasures. They're the kind of treasures that moths and corrosion deteriorate. Um, my version said vermin, which is a, not a word I use a whole lot on a daily basis. And you're probably used to the phrase where moth and rust doth destroy. <coughs> the word translated there, either vermin or, or rust, um, is just a word that means something like corrosion or decay. It could be caused by another kind of insect other than a moth. It could be caused by, you know, the environment, the atmosphere. But this is what happens to earthly treasures, right? They can be destroyed and deteriorated by insects, by animals, by the environment. And if not that, they're subject to thieves who break in and steal. Now, we're pretty good today about protecting our stuff, right? Um, I've got a Suburban that's pretty rusty. <laughs> But generally, we, we have means to control and to prevent rust or corrosion. We have ways of keeping insects from deteriorating our goods. And we keep most of our possessions now in some other form than actual material possessions. And they're probably in a bank somewhere or something like that. And if the bank gets robbed, that's okay because we have insurance. Right. Even if our homes get robbed, we generally have insurance. So because we're more careful now and have more means of protecting our stuff, does Jesus teaching here do his words then not apply? I would say not at all. His focus isn't on the details of how our stuff gets deteriorated or destroyed. What he's saying is that earthly treasures are temporary, right? Earthly treasures are temporary. In whatever form you have them, with however much insurance you carry on them, they are at their very best still temporary. In contrast to this, we have the second command, which is exactly the same as the first without the negative. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Again, we have the for yourselves. So is this a selfish thing? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 
where um, Jesus is saying that our motivation for acts of piety, like prayer and fasting and giving, should be heavenly reward. And is it wrong then to do good things even for the expectation of reward, um, even if that reward is heavenly? And we just said, no, it's not, because God is the author of those good things. So when we seek his reward, we're seeking really what is inherently valuable in the first place. So while it is a selfish thing to store up for yourselves earthly treasures, um, it's not in the same way selfish to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay. Now, where are the treasures? Well, instead of being in the earth, where they're subject to decay and deterioration and destruction and theft, we store these treasures up in heaven. So what are they? What are the heavenly treasures? We're not told exactly. But think of anything that lasts eternally. Your salvation, right? Um, anything that lasts eternally or has eternal consequences, your character. What's interesting to me is that if we turn towards the end of Matthew to Matthew 25, what lasts in this parable is how we treat the least of these, right? It's the parable of the sheep and the goats, and both groups, they're, they're judged according to how they treated the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the stranger and the prisoner. And one group saying, Lord, we didn't see you naked or hungry or thirsty. Of course, we would have given Jesus whatever he wanted. Jesus says what? When you've done it or what you've not done. To the least of these, you've not done to me. And likewise, the sheep are rewarded for how they've taken care of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. And they in like, they in like turn ask, Lord, when did we do this for you? We don't remember seeing you in this condition. And Jesus says, what you have done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So our salvation, our character, our witness of the gospel to others, our compassion and charity to the poor and to the powerless, these are at least the beginning of what lasts of what Jesus has in mind when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in contrast to the earthly treasure, heavenly treasure, of course, is not subject to deterioration or decay. It's not available for thieves. It doesn't change with the economy, right? It's not destroyed by natural disasters. Heavenly treasure lasts. 
This first section with the negative and positive commands closes with what I think is a jarring statement. Up until this point, everyone can kind of be nodding their head while they think of a hundred ways that they can justify accumulating possessions and wealth. Like, well, as long as I make sure it's secure, right? Um, I'll be okay. I'll convert my cash to gold. I think that's what you're supposed to do now. I saw something on TV about that. And I'll get insurance on everything just in case of some kind of disaster. Oh, yeah. And I'll even tithe. I'll even tithe out of my wealth. So that that will, you know, make my accumulation of things favorable before God and men. I'll even talk about my wealth as God's blessing. And I'll say that he gets the glory for it, uh, even though I gained it through dishonesty and manipulation. But I'll still talk about it as blessing, right? Well, Jesus stops our justification and excuse-making, if there was any, in its tracks and says simply, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this statement has always sounded backwards to me. And I don't know if it does to you, and I have a hard time explaining of why it sounds backwards to me. But what I expect to hear is this, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. It makes more sense to me to think of my treasure following my heart than my heart following my treasure. But if there's one thing we learn from the Sermon on the Mount, it's that our perception of our heart or how we portray our hearts before people can be full of an awful lot of deception. We want our hearts to be praised by people. Remember, Jesus says we can get this praise from people, but if we do, we'll get nothing from him. We want our hearts to be recognized. Jesus says we can get that recognition but absolutely nothing more. And how often do we justify selfishness and wickedness and greed because, well, she has a good heart or he has a good heart. Our desire is that Jesus simply take our word about the condition of our heart and judge everything else in light of that, right? That's what we would like, humanly speaking. And Jesus says to that, no, that's not the way this works. Jesus says, show me your treasure. Show me what it is and where it is. And I don't need to see your heart. I don't need to take your word for your heart because it will be right there beside your treasure. Now, remember that one of the main things we learned about our Heavenly Father in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6 was that that he sees what we do in secret because he's present there in the secret spaces. He knows our hearts because we can't hide them from him. Verse 21 then serves as a beautiful and kind of a treacherous bridge to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but especially to the rest of chapter 6. Jesus teaching on possessions, and then next week I'll be preaching to myself because there's stuff about provision 
there and not worrying about your house and things like that, right? <laughs> you can't hide your heart from your Heavenly Father. Uh, you can lie about it. You can say things about your heart that aren't true. You can dress up your heart. You could put a bow on it, make it presentable. I don't know. You could even try to bury it deep. But he knows. And what Jesus is telling us is really this. He doesn't even need to see your heart because he can see your treasure. Right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Next, Jesus is going to give us two graphic illustrations of what it looks like to store up treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Temporary treasures versus eternal treasures. The applause of people or reward from your heavenly father. The first illustration is a little confusing. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. Now, when I first read this through, I'm asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with treasures in heaven, right? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, right? But if your eyes are unhealthy, the whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the darkness within you, or if the light within you is darkness, how great that is that darkness, what in the world does that have to do with storing up treasures in, on earth or in heaven? Now, <clears throat> most of us today have a pretty good idea of how vision works, right? Lights reflected from the sun or through lamps, right? Off objects, some of it's absorbed, some of it's reflected. It enters our eyes where the image is focused on our retina, upside down, which is crazy if you start thinking about it our brains flip it the right way at least we think it does maybe we really are all upside down i don't know i'm take a biologist word for it here but we kind of know how light works but in the ancient world eyes were seen as a source of light okay this helps make sense of this passage a bit um, now, there's some debate about this, right? Scholars disagree about exactly what's going on, and I don't think the overall point changes much. But when Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, he's seeing the eye as a source of light. And what kind of light your eyes give off is an indication of the health of what's going on inside your body. So if the eye is unhealthy, that's an indication that your whole body is full of darkness. But if your eyes are healthy, then that's an indication that your body is healthy. It's full of light. Again, the overall point doesn't change much. Jesus is saying, I think what he's doing is he's just giving us, kind of moving us from the heart to the eyes. Just like the heart reveals what's going on inside of us, so do the eyes. If your eyes look healthy, then your body must be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, then the light that comes from them is darkness. 
And if the light that comes from your eyes is darkness, then how dark is the darkness? There's a play on words going on here too. When Jesus says if your light is if your eyes are healthy, healthy also means single. Singular might be a better word, or sincere, uh, not terribly different from the image we got from blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those whose hearts are singularly devoted. The healthy eye is the single or the sincere eye, and it's also used in other places of generosity. Okay? So the physically healthy eye is an image of a spirit of generosity, of sincerity. The word used here for unhealthy also can mean wicked or evil and also sometimes selfish. (coughs) So what Jesus is saying is this, a generous eye right? The sincere, the healthy, the generous eye reveals an illuminated heart, while the selfish eye reveals the darkness inside. And because of how they believe the eyes worked, you can't betray, you can't hide what's going on inside of you, okay? The eyes reveal it. So the point seems to be this. How do you respond to those in need? Do you respond in selfishness, in miserliness? It's kind of an old word. You don't hear too much anymore. Miserly. Or do you respond with sincerity, with generosity, because of your singular devotion to Jesus? The second illustration concerns the relationship between a slave and his or her master. Now, Remember Jesus' audience here. Israel had some history with slavery, you might recall, right? A little thing called the Exodus. Because of that history, they despised even the idea of ever being enslaved again. And it comes up throughout the New Testament. Um, Jesus is making reference to that, or John the Baptist is making reference to that when he says he's not even un, he's not even worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. That was a slave's job. John the Baptist says, compared to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to do what the lowliest of slaves would do. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he's becoming their slave. So this idea pops up here and there throughout the New Testament. He's choosing a provocative image here. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. The image was startling, and Jesus is speaking here in hyperbole, right? He seems to be exaggerating. Uh, It probably wasn't common, but it was possible for a slave to have multiple masters, multiple owners. 
And it was certainly possible that a slave with multiple owners could maybe love more than one of their owners or despise all of their owners or everything in between. So what is Jesus saying? When it comes to slave and master, he's exaggerating, right? When it comes to worldly human um, conventions about slavery and ownership, Jesus is exaggerating. But when he turns it to God and money or God and possessions, he's not. He's not exaggerating at all. If your treasure is stored up on this earth and your heart is right there with it, then your devotion is not divided. It is devoted. It's devoted to mammon. It's devoted to money. It's devoted to possessions. And while you might think you have created it, and while you might have constructed your wealth, and while you might protect it and control it, Jesus says that it is actually your master. And you are its slave. Do you see the irony here? If you're storing up earthly treasures, you are creating your own master. So what do we do with this? Right? I mean, that's why you're here, to listen to me tell you what to do. Right? <laughs> like, let's cut out all the talk about words and phrases and just tell me what to do. Right? This is one of those passages I think that too much explanation and advice from me ends up sounding like justification for what Jesus is telling us to avoid in this text. This text is certainly about possessions, but remember that it's directed to disciples, those who have a singular devotion to Jesus. If you are singularly, singularly devoted to Jesus, then you have one treasure. You have one eye. You have one master. But this passage isn't simply asking, are you my disciple? Rather, it's asking, where is your treasure? Right? That's a lot harder to answer. Are you my disciple? Oh, of course. Right? I mean, even Judas. But where is your treasure? Because your heart will be with your treasure. I can't really give you a lot of, of advice. I can't give you a list of principles to follow to make sure that your possessions don't possess you. It's become kind of a thing in evangelical Christianity or maybe even beyond evangelical Christianity. Like I think of Dave Ramsey and the debt-free movement, which has its, you know, it's better to be debt-free than not debt-free. But the idea that if, as long as you can afford it, it's okay, I think is, is, is misguided, is misdirected. The standard of possessions isn't whether you're going into debt for them or not. But again, I can't really give you a list of principles here to make sure your possessions don't possess you. I, this is a strange text, and in some way it seems to speak to us. I mean, this is weird. It seems to speak to us. 21st century Westerners, 21st century Americans, more than to its original audience, which is backwards. The Bible speaks to its original audience, and we have to go sometimes through a lot of hard work to figure out what it's saying to us. But when I think about this text, in the first century Mediterranean world, 
you generally couldn't create wealth through your education and through your hard work. If you were wealthy and you were wise, you generally stayed wealthy and you passed on that wealth to your children. And if they were wise, they stayed wealthy and passed it on to theirs. The poor generally stayed poor. I would guess there were a lot more riches to rags stories from the first century than there were rags to riches stories. So think of Jesus' audience, right? It's primarily the disciples, the twelve, and others who had the singular devotion to Jesus. And then there were others around listening in. But it's primarily to his disciples. Was there any real danger of these men who had left businesses and homes and family to follow Jesus? Was there any real risk of them somehow accumulating possessions, somehow hoarding wealth? I don't imagine the disciples listening to Jesus here and thinking, I'm so glad he brought this up because I was totally planning on getting rich by following Jesus. Now, in 21st century America, you can get rich by claiming to follow Jesus. In the first century, not so much. So what was their temptation? What issue is Jesus addressing with his followers here if the accumulation of material wealth was maybe not their most pressing temptation? (coughs) Well, we go back to earlier in chapter 6. The temptation to seek status. Status, if it's anything, is just another kind of earthly treasure. It's temporary, and it's easily eroded and corroded and destroyed and deteriorated. And you could get status by your public piety, by giving in public, by praying in public to be noticed, by letting everyone know you were fasting, and Jesus has already dealt with that. So I think he's dealing with the temptation for status. He's also dealing with the temptation for self-preservation. He'll do this even more in verses 25 through 34 that we'll talk about next week. But what's Jesus' call, right? If anyone wants to follow me, right, he must do what? Take up his... Take up his cross, right? Not like take up his 401k, whatever that is. I think I have one, maybe. I don't know. And in preparing for this like transition, I've like started digging into like teacher retirements. That stuff's so far beyond me, it might as well be like brain surgery. But you know, take up your cross, Mark 8:34. If anyone wants to follow me. He must take up his cross. That's the call to discipleship. That's Jesus' call to us, is to take up our cross. And that call hasn't changed. So I think the temptation for the disciples would have been status, would have been self-preservation, would have been avoiding the way of the cross. 
I think of Paul living this out when he says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, someone many, many, many years ago, in fact, I'm going to guess it was about 1989, taught me that passage. And he put it this way, and it stuck with me. Not much from 1989 stuck with me, but this did. Replace Christ with anything else. For to me, to live is status. Then to die is loss. For to me, to live is Retirement, that to die is loss. For to me to live is my house or my real estate or my estate or my inheritance or fill in the blank with anything except for Christ, right? Then to die is loss. But it's only if you live in such a way where you could say with Paul, with this undivided, singular loyalty to Jesus, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, Really, verses 19 through 24 are setting us up for next week where Jesus speaks about worrying. Okay. Okay. But I just want you to understand that the the call in the Sermon on the Mount, the call in this passage, isn't to to follow a, a list of principles or or a, a list that you could check off and say I've done I've done this 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 yes I'm okay. It's a call to an undivided devotion, and there's really no such thing as a divided devotion. Jesus says it's not yours to split. If you're splitting it up then it's not to him. Let's pray.